I had no idea at the time that Bitcoin could play a role in stabilizing the grid. I didn't think about Bitcoin's role in incentivizing renewable build-out in advance of transmission. So I've learned a great deal about Bitcoin mining, how it operates and its potential to actually green the grid and to fund the build-out of renewable infrastructure. And I also learned that it's simply not consuming as much energy, simply not producing as much emissions as I once thought. Welcome to the Progressive Bitcoiner podcast, where we explore the intersection of Bitcoin and progressive issues. I'm your host, Mark Stefani. When I was in college and medical school, hanging above my desk was the painting, The School of Athens by Raphael. It was my belief that the collective wisdom of all these great thinkers might somehow drip onto my brain and provide me inspiration. Well, it turns out I was never at my desk long enough to find out but the painting remains my favorite to this day, and one of the reasons why I could not be more excited to be joined by two great philosophers, Troy Cross and Andrew Bailey. I'm not sure which one is Plato or Aristotle, but from what I know of Troy, he's most like Diogenes just lounging on the steps. Either way, I hope to find out. We have a wide-ranging conversation today about philosophy's application in contemporary society to emotion and reason, collectivism and individualism, as well as Bitcoin's environmental impact. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoy the show. Here we are, Troy and Andrew. Welcome to the Progressive Bitcoiner podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us, Mark. You are two of the most uh, respected voices in the Bitcoin space. So I'm really honored, truly, uh, to have you here. Oh, no. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't think of us as respectable, but but thank you, Mark. <laughs> yeah, if we're two of the most respected voices, I really feel for the people who are disrespected. We can do better than that. I, I beg to differ, and I think there are a lot of people out there who would. So, uh, with that in mind, I think there are a lot of listeners uh, to the podcast who are new to Bitcoin. So, uh, please introduce yourselves if you don't mind. My name is Andrew Bailey, and I teach philosophy, politics, and economics at Yale and U.S. College which is a small school in Singapore. And as part of my teaching, because my students required me to, really, I started thinking more carefully about Bitcoin, not just as a speculative investment, but in terms of, well, what is this doing to the world? And that is the, the lens through which I approach it now, both in my research and my advocacy and uh, random thoughts on Twitter. And uh, I'm Troy Cross. I teach philosophy and humanities at uh, Reed College in uh, Portland, Oregon. And I've been in the Bitcoin space for about a decade now and only recently become involved in sort of Bitcoin Twitter and only really as a result of thinking about mining and energy and that sort of thing. Um, since then, my, my areas of interest in, within Bitcoin and what I talk about has widened considerably and kind of covers the whole space. Bitcoin does that to you, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. You get in through one angle, and then you find there's 10 other angles that you've just got to think about, and then uh, it never really ends. That's absolutely the truth, and one of the reasons why I have been so thrilled to be doing this podcast, and even after the fourth episode here, it's it's been such a thrill talking to everybody because it's that breadth of study through Bitcoin that's been so refreshing. 
I want to start off with some general questions. Uh, like I said, you, the two of you have the ability to approach Bitcoin from so many different directions. I want to start off uh, a bit more general. One of the things that I admire about you on Twitter is the fact that when you approach conversations, if we can call it that on Twitter, you seem to be much more pragmatic in your approach. You ask questions, I would argue, certainly fairly. You don't get overly uh, emotional about it. You don't get pulled into a lot of the, I want to prove I'm right in this scenario. Uh, you're out to really peel away the layers of someone's tweet and uh, ultimately the conversation. Obviously, a lot of this has to do with your background as philosophers. And so I'm ultimately intrigued by the ability to apply that same style of questioning to broader issues that face us as individuals and as society. So ultimately, my question here is, what role do you see philosophy playing in contemporary society? Is there a role for it beyond the walls of academia? Well, that's a wonderful question. There's kind of the real, realistic answer, which is how much is philosophy actually doing? And there's the aspirational answer of how much could it do? And I think re the realistic answer is it trains a lot of people who go on to do all sorts of things with their lives. But I don't think there's a huge role for public philosophy in the world right now. Um, aspirationally, of course, uh, we like to think uh, that we like to think that philosophers could say something meaningful and applicable about the real world. Um, going to your point about how we deal with disagreement, heated emotions, tribalism, defensiveness, some of this certainly is disciplinary training. And you know, you're a doctor, you have uh, you have patients come in in distress, and you have family members who are in distress. And um, since I've been those patients and those family members, I know that the doctors remain calm and they do this um, triage, what has to be done right now. And they're thinking about what's best for the patient and not getting caught up in the emotional maelstrom that is real. And there's something similar in philosophy, actually. You, you, it's like you see so many bodies uh, come in. Our bodies are our arguments. They're philosophical arguments, right? And uh, there's, they're, all, they're, they're all shrouded in feeling, in emotion, charged. Uh, but, but you just start seeing like step one, step two. Like what, what is the argument? You identify the premises. You identify the conclusion. You look at the relation between the premises and conclusion. Anybody should get this out of a philosophical education. But it's really experiences that teaches you to keep your cool and nothing less than experience because you're still human. And I'm sure like you, as a physician, uh, your emotions still get involved when a case comes in, right? And it's only experience that allows you to tamp that down. Uh, but I want to say one more thing about the role of emotion. And that is, I don't really think of emotion as separate from reason itself. I like Aristotle, I think of the emotions as judgments. So when you're angry, that's a judgment of injustice. You know, when you're scared, uh, when you're afraid, that's a judgment of danger. And the emotions, when they're working properly, we don't even call it being emotional. You know, when you get angry at, a, at an injustice, we don't really even call it emotion. We don't say you're, you're so emotional. But it's when the emotions are kind of out of sync with the reality that they track that we note it as emotional, right? So I think what you aim for, and I don't in any way claim to have achieved this, 
but sort of a lifelong aim is calibrating your emotions to what reality is like so that you always have the appropriate emotional reaction in a situation. You feel when you're supposed to feel. I mean, if you don't feel any anger in the face of injustice, you know, you might want to, you, you, you might want to self-reflect <laughs> if you don't, if you don't feel anger in that situation. Right. But yeah, so I, I think ultimately it's about properly calibrating your emotions to reality, channeling them, and then just picking through arguments piece by piece. And I hope this is something that people learn in taking philosophy, but it, I think it's something anybody can learn. And I hope we model it. Actually, I hope we model it as a Bitcoin community. I don't always do the best job of modeling it myself. You are quite the troller, Troy. Andrew, any thoughts? I, I think thank you is the right reply to that, Troy. I, I do agree with Troy's final point, especially that emotions ought not to be contrasted with reason. And I like the image of channeling emotions. It's energy. An emotion is a bit of energy that can drive you to do something, and that's good. Having the drive, the desire that can be turned into action, that's good. So the question is how to channel that properly and direct it in the right way. And along similar lines, I think that reason can, can check emotions. And here's an example I was thinking of. The emotion of disgust is a very morally important one. And sometimes it's right. When we feel disgust at something, it's because something is wrong. But disgust isn't always a good guide to what's right and wrong. And I think disgust reactions to markets. Sometimes people see the exchange of money for something that they view as valuable and they think, ah, oh, it's somehow gross. And my own view is that that's a place where reason can step in and check or channel the disgust reaction. Uh, but sometimes disgust is a guide to reality and we shouldn't push away the emotion, uh, but in fact embrace it and use it as a, use it to activate us into doing something about that part of reality that's actually bad. I'm going to jump right ahead here to addressing this very question of emotion and reason. When I was growing up, in fact, my father used to tell me, don't let your emotions override your reason. And the message was obviously, I will make poor judgments if I do so. Uh, well, subsequently, later in my life, I was able to use that against him. <laughs> and uh, so it worked out well, but the message is, has stuck with me nonetheless. So wait, wait, how did you use it against him? Well, clearly when he would get emotional <laughs> and I would, and I would have to tell him uh, not to let it override his reason in a particular situation, uh, to which uh, it did not work out very well either way. So my, my question though, is clearly the, the issues as progressives that we care deeply about, whether it's LGBTQ or the environment, are deeply emotional things that we care about, and rightfully so. But I, I am wondering whether some of that emotion could be clouding the ability to explore other avenues for improvement in these issues, such as, in this case, obviously, Bitcoin. What are your thoughts? Uh, I, I mean, I think the answer is yes. Uh, <laughs> I think this podcast and uh, the progressive Bitcoiner space is uh, occluded by emotion from a lot of parties, right? In, in part because, and Andrew and I have talked about this, uh, the Bitcoin community has been under attack of various kinds for the entirety of its existence. And so you have to be very wary and careful. And if a group comes along that says, our, our identities and our politics are not represented in this space, 
and we'd like to change the space. What Bitcoiners hear is, here's another group that wants to change Bitcoin. Here's another group that's attacking the network. And they've sort of been trained into that. And so what's the, this is kind of a classic right. uh, fear where fear is not merited. And um, aggression where aggression is not merited, right? Like essentially, there's a, there's a fear of an attack, but the attack isn't real. And yeah, it, that, sort of re, that sort of reaction prevents you from seeing the possibility of introducing Bitcoin to an entire audience of people for whom Bitcoin is really kind of outside of the Overton window. So yeah, it, it, it's counterproductive. One thing I found useful is activating alternative emotions. And this is what I see is happening in much of Alex Gladstein's work. So you'll see a lot of people talk about Bitcoin strictly in terms of price. And that activates certain reactions. Some people just don't like talking about money and markets and people speculating and making a bunch of money on this asset bubble and so on. What Alex's work does is it invites us to have a different kind of topic in mind and an emotional palette associated with that topic. And the topic is oppression, monetary repression in particular. And uh, the aggressive way of targeting that or activating that emotion is to say, check your financial privilege. That is uh, kind of a, a jab at some readers. But I, but I think it, in, it invites us and activates a different, a different palette of emotions to think, wait a minute, not just, not just about price, but about Bitcoin and justice. And that, that's just a very different mode of thinking that once you get in that space, then I think the Bitcoin is a Ponzi or Bitcoin is an asset buzzle, bubble. That, that, that kind of thinking, it can just dissipate and you, you see something totally new there. So, so I, I would point to Alex Gladstein as uh, a nice example of a way of, of doing that. And we certainly try to do that in our own work. We don't talk about Bitcoin's price. Uh, I, I like to surprise people in conversation when they ask, oh, why do you like Bitcoin? And I can go on for an hour without mentioning price. And they, of course, they want to talk about the price, but I, I try to avoid that as long as I can uh, just to, to switch gears from what we see in the headlines, which is always, you know, Bitcoin is up or as the case may be, Bitcoin is down. What are some practical ways by which you can learn to check your emotion when it comes to reasoning through an issue? Uh, Andrew, I believe you said you don't see that emotion and reason conflict. Is there a way that you actually work through that, not only personally, but as you teach it as a professor? Can I jump in? Uh, I think part of seeing emotion and reason is not op opposed, but on some kind of, well, emotion as being a component of reason is that you you should push into the reasons for the emotion. <laughs> you know, this is a standard, standard psych talk, but it's, it's also philosophy talk mm -hmm. because uh, arguments all begin with emotions. You feel like something is wrong. You want to say why it's wrong. Well, it ends up you, you give your reasons. That's how you express like the why of the emotion. Or you think something's great and you want to explain why it's great to someone else. You express your emotion. So you're like, like getting rid of the emotion or stifling it or even tamping it down. You're actually pushing into the motion rather than running away from it. But you're making your emotion felt by anyone else who may not share it right now. And that's kind of what argument is. You, know, you have this general feeling about some proposition or position or truth. You want others to feel the way you feel about it. And so you, you start offering reasons. And your reasons aren't going to work unless they work on people who don't share that emotion. And then the art of argument is doing that well 
and doing that widely. So you can rope in people who are not at all where you are and bring them to where you are, right? But there's something else that happens. It's not just about persuasion, but it's about discovery. Once you push into the emotion and ask why you have it, sometimes you realize like that emotion is ill-founded. There just isn't good reason for that emotion at all. And uh, so, so you, you, you might start, start the argument for the purpose of persuading someone else, but you end up persuading yourself that you were wrong. Uh, so yeah, I, I, this is more back to the earlier question, but the, the, how do you deal with emotion from my perspective is kind of go in the opposite direction that you would think go right into the emotion. And also you notice that like doing this, doing this thing of pushing into an emotion and asking myself, like, so I think of it in terms of fear, fear is very common in the Bitcoin space, right? I see a lot of fear, uh, of Bitcoin from, uh, Mainstream economists, mainstream journalists, uh, there, there's there's a fear of what it could do to the to the world, to the financial system, who it might empower. The fears aren't very well articulated, but they're very strong, right? And I think that once you start pushing into those fears and really investigating, articulating them precisely, then I, I think the, the fear level comes way down. I mean, it's partly just the nature of pushing in deeply into reason just not compatible with these extreme emotions, right? So yeah, that's my therapy. My therapy is like push into the emotion, make it into explicit reasons for other people, preferably involve those other people. Uh, it's kind of like the philosopher's talk therapy, you know, make an argument, um, make it better. This is something that Troy and I, I imagine, often see play out in the classroom. One device that I've often used is when conversation gets heated, just comment on that fact that it's heated. We stop, we notice, and then take a pause and everyone write down on a card one or two sentences about what they're thinking or feeling right now. And then we pass the cards down and you read out loud someone else's card. And just having you speak someone else's words that are articulating what they're thinking and feeling at that moment can do a lot to just help you notice what's happening, both on the level of affect and reason. Classic, classic philosopher classroom trick. It actually works. That's great, Andrew. I'm going to steal that. Yeah, we just need Twitter cards now. That's all. <laughs> My next question dovetails off of all of this, and it inches us a little bit closer towards uh, our discussions about Bitcoin directly. But it's got a long setup, so please bear with me here. It's no secret that our economy requires an ever-increasing level of consumption to drive growth. It's a growth at all costs kind of mindset. Savings is immoral. It's even deemed pathological as in hoarding. We know this to be true because there's an equal and opposite reaction to this, right? There is the need to slow down and just take it easy. You know, if we could all just be Don Henley and, and, and we'll be fine or Mary Kondo our lives and, and, and everything will be okay. And I've been thinking a lot about what is this the impact of all of this on our individual and collective psyche, which in turn has made me reflect on this the old study of the, the Good Samaritan study, which the two of you are undoubtedly familiar with. Uh, but I'll paraphrase here briefly for our listeners. Two groups of seminary students, uh, one group was primed into thinking that they were in a rush, going to be late for the next task as a part of the experiment. The other group was uh, told that they were had plenty of time to get there. On the way to the next building, 
there was a plant, a man who was in a doorway, slumped over, clearly in need of help. The people who were, the seminary students who were in a rush, stepped over the person, didn't help, kept going. Those who were not in a rush, most often helped the person. And this was even when a lot of the seminary students were told that they had to give a lecture on the Good Samaritan parable. So I have been wondering, are we collectively stepping over each other? Is the man slumped over in the doorway a metaphor for the issues that we care about as progressives? Which also makes me think, how can we all truly care about these broader issues when we are rushing around to get to the next thing, to buy the next thing, to consume the next thing, to go into further debt, to get to our second job, to pay off the debt, on and on and on. Even in the original paper, uh, The Good Samaritan Study, the authors Darlene Batson and 73 say that, quote, ethics become a luxury as the speed of our daily lives increases. So additionally, in my opinion, we, we also commit this fundamental attribution error towards those who are stepping over the man in need. They must be evil. The person speeding down the highway must be evil. The person who, quote unquote, does not care about climate change must be evil. So I'm just wondering, are we all just stepping over each other at this point? That's the end of my rant, and I'd be grateful for your thoughts on it. It's a deep question with connections all across ethics and really just life together. Here's one initial thought. I think it's tempting to take from research like that the conclusion that either the seminarians were bad or that there's no such thing as good or bad character at all. It's just a matter of context. The conclusion I take is a little bit different. It's not that we're all bad or that we don't have character, whether good or bad at all. It's that our character is extraordinarily socially sensitive. That is, you can have things like virtues, like the virtue of courage or generosity, but that uh, it, it's sensitive, it's activation conditions are sensitive. It's only activated in the right institutional context or in the right social context. And we can shape human behavior quite a bit by changing that context. It doesn't mean that the people, that all the Nazis were really bad or all that they're really good, but they did all have an institutional context that activated vices. But to immediately ramp up the rhetoric all the way to Nazis, yes. <laughs> So here's just a quick example. You're, you're thinking about caring for each other, really, Mark, uh, being my brother's keeper. What is an institutional context in which that virtue gets activated? And what is one where the corresponding vice gets activated? Well, here's a tool that I use or that my colleagues and I use at our institution. I'm sure, sure Troy does as well at Reed College. Uh, these are both small liberal arts colleges. We use nested communities. So it starts out with a small classroom or a small hallway in a dorm where students live together, where they know each other's names. And having those small intimate experiences where you encounter someone else and their mind and their heart, that makes it so much easier to care for them because you know them. So having contact, an institutional context where we actually encounter each other and we know a face and a name and a mind and a heart it means that we can care for each other even in a larger community of a thousand students. So maybe that's, maybe that's a cheesy example. But that's the kind of thing that, that I think about when thinking about uh, this situation and character 
connection. And then the, the question is, how do we design economic and social institutions or situations that activate good character rather than bad? Huge question, I know. But that, that's the, the direction this uh, topic takes my mind, at least. Yeah, I, I'm, that was excellent, Andrew. I don't, I don't have an answer to this question. My wife has a degree in psychology and her specialty was social psychology. And then she did some grad work in that field. And social psychologists, their subject of study is exactly these kinds of influences on behavior and not just behavior, but belief, intention, and the full range of human cognitive states and emotions. And it's not just the Good Samaritan study that raises these questions, but it's related studies like uh, the Stanford Prison Experiments, Lombardo, where students are assigned the roles of guard or prisoner in a role-playing exercise, which makes the guards abusive and makes the prisoners behave in various ways that are prisoner-like to a shocking degree. Just role-playing something can bring it to life. And of course, the Milgram experiments, most famous, where an authority figure directs a test subject to deliver what they think is a shock and to deliver that shock in ever-increasing intensities. And most subjects go right along with these experiments and shock other people as part of the experiment or think they're shocking other people. And you know, the upshot of all of this is that we like to think of ourselves as stable dispositions towards behavior. We like to think of ourselves as in character traits. But really we're shaped to a, an incredible degree by these social forces that we don't recognize as shaping us. And then you, you mentioned something else, a fundamental attribution error. It's behind many different cognitive biases. And uh, for your listeners who haven't heard of this, the idea is that when you witness some behavior that's bad behavior, if the person behaving badly is in your in-group, if there's somebody you identify with, then you make excuses for them. You chalk that up to their social situation, right? Like these seminarians, like if you're a seminarian and you read about this study, seminarians stepping over someone on the way to give a talk about the Good Samaritan's uh, parable, you'll be like, oh, defensive of the seminarian. Well, you see the job's really uh, important and they had to get there. And you don't understand how rare jobs are in my field. you know, And uh, they would have stopped on any other occasion. It's an unfair experiment. Probably was an unfair experiment. I mean, you can imagine it being set up by the psychologist to target the seminarians in this like obviously ironic way. Like, okay, so I'm getting defensive. I'm not even a seminarian. But then if you, if you don't like seminarians, then you're like, yeah, those seminarians are all hypocrites. So if someone's in the out group when you witness bad behavior, you chalk it up to their, their, their character rather than the circumstances. And the flip side is true. So if, if, they do, if you witness some good behavior, witness good behavior from somebody in your in-group, that's because they're a good person. Witness good behavior from someone from the out-group, that's uh, because the circumstances were propitious for them. Either way, whether someone gets credit for an action, good or bad, depends on whether, whether they're in your in-group or your out-group. And they show this with experiments. Uh, let's say you have a vignette, a story that you tell about someone uh, doing something good, and you make that character in the vignette Palestinian, and then you give that story to the same exact story to some Palestinians and to some Israelis and see how they rate the person and uh, as a good person or a bad person. And then you 
flip the expendable groups. So these are just like ubiquitous psychological phenomena that undermine or attack the very idea of character. And I should also say that some of these studies are at the center of the replication crisis in psychology. And some of them we can't replicate, like because of uh, human subjects committees won't let us replicate, nor should they, things like the prison experiments or uh, the Milgram experiments. Sure. What I was trying to do is draw the connection between our fiscal and monetary policy, this drive for consumption, what that does to an individual to being on the the rat race, so to speak, that constant need for, not need, but almost forced consumption, the pressure that you feel, that rushed, that, that they describe in the study, and in turn, our ability to care for others. I agree that that exists, that pressure, and that it does impinge on our ability to care for one another. I don't have any solution to that as a philosopher. And I'm a little bit wary of engineering one as a philosopher king. You know, I think uh, I'm I'm wary of experts designing, I guess, doing the thing that Andrew suggested, (laughs) thinking about what environments are most conducive to ethical behavior and then building those environments simply because that mechanism is subject to abuse. Well, then... Let me pose the the next question because you probably know where this is headed. Uh, Bitcoin is it's proposed that it does not or will not emphasize consumption both currently as hodlers as well as in the future in a more potentially deflationary economy. So, if one accepts those premises, is there then a moral argument for Bitcoin and ma- making ethics quote affordable? I would put a cautionary note on that argument before saying anything positive about it because I think there are vices in both directions here. You've already pointed out, Mark, one vice, which is, let's call it consumerism. Spend, spend, spend. More, more, more. Generating ever more plastic garbage. So there are negative externalities from that for the environment. There are internalities. It does bad things to our character. And maybe it doesn't set us up well to care for each other. Okay, so that's one vice, consumerism. But on the other hand, hoarding is a vice too. Just taking money and stashing it away and never doing anything with it does no one any good. It's miserly. It's Scrooge. That's not good either. So as usual, virtue is found somewhere in the median. It's spending not too much and not too little on the right things in the right ways at the right time. Now that is not a practically useful slogan, but I think it captures the truth that there's something in the median here, which is the the virtue that we want, judicious saving and spending as required. Now, most of our sovereign currencies push us in one direction rather than the other because their supply inflates and their value accordingly can be predicted reliably to deflate. The rational thing to do is to spend. So they discourage savings and encourage spending. So I would hypothesize that in terms of our social or institutional situation, it's pushed us in one direction towards a vice and away from the median. I would hesitate, though, to say that we should immediately have only a deflationary monetary good available to us. Uh, That would likely push us all the way towards the other vice. So perhaps ironically, I could suggest that an institutional or social environment where both kinds of things are available might actually be, if not optimal, at least a a step up from where we are now. So I think of Bitcoin as an attractive addition rather than replacement of 
extant financial instruments, goods, payment avenues, savings technologies, and so on. Yeah, I like everything Andrew said. I, you know, I've read these books by uh, Seyfedin Amus, and the master argument there is that money shapes time preference and that time preference doesn't just manifest with respect to money, but with respect to life in general. And I'm not actually sure whether I buy that argument. I'm attracted to it, but it's an empirical hypothesis. As a scientist, I want to see some empirical evidence that it's true. Um, so I'm hesitant. I'm hesitant to just jump on board and say Bitcoin fixes this because I don't know that it does. I, I think the problem that you're pointing about, about our harried life, the, the rat race of life is a bigger problem than just the money. But I don't think that having an inflationary currency helps. And I think that having a sound saving vehicle that is not risky would help. I don't know the degree to which it would help. But yeah, if your money is burning a hole in your pocket and you have to spend, then you cannot get off the treadmill. And, and, and correspondingly, if wages keep declining, uh, you're caught in a, in a loop of working harder to earn less and, ha- and being unable to save. And many people are, in fact, caught in that loop. And that's unjust. And it leads to a kind of what looks to be unethical behavior from the outside. But it could be from a person who would be virtuous in slightly different circumstances. No, I agree. I, I think on Twitter, when the argument is framed as a, a binary situation where, like you said, we're all spending over here or we're all miserly over here, just in the end gets us nowhere. There's got to be a happy medium in there somewhere. And like you said, maybe the addition, there's there's a complementary situation uh, between the two scenarios. Let's move on to a few more questions here as we work our way towards more Bitcoin-related one of the more heated discussions on on Bitcoin Twitter is focusing on collectivism and individualism. Obviously, kind of splits down party lines with regard to individualism being more uh, conservative, libertarian thought, and collectivism the opposite side. But as I've thought about that more and more over the past year or two, I'm beginning to wonder if somehow the core values within those ideals can be brought together through Bitcoin. Because I'm wondering if an open source, a permissionless, available to all, non-confiscatable money begins to bridge that gap between individualism and the progressive sense of collectivism. Do you think that there's somehow mutual uh, understanding in there somewhere? I'm beginning to believe that there is, and it's certainly hard to tease out within the, the Twitter community, certainly hard to push people in that direction. But I think, as you alluded to earlier, with regard to how you push somebody on emotion, when you push somebody on truly what they want, what they want out of that individualism, what do they want out of that collectivism, you can come to some core understanding by which that open monetary network could perhaps serve as some common ground. What are your thoughts on that? This is another expansive, difficult question. I first encountered the word collectivism when I was a teenager and I read some Ayn Rand and I thought then that I knew what it was and that it was bad. I'm less convinced of either of those claims now. I'm not sure I know what it is or that it's bad, but, but here's a hypothesis about how to understand what individualism and collectivism are. And maybe we can connect that to Bitcoin. You can ask someone, what are you? What's the first answer they give? 
Now, it could be something like, oh, I'm a woman. I'm a man. I would think of that on as being on the more individualistic side of things. But what if you said, I'm a son. I'm a father. I'm a president. Giving those as answers, that is, giving as answers your social role, your familial connections, where you are situated within a social network, that is more collectivistic in flavor. You think of yourself as being socially embedded, and that's the first answer to the question, what are you? It is not easy to move someone from one side of the spectrum to another, nor do I necessarily think there's any point in trying to do so. So maybe the way I would connect this to Bitcoin is just to wonder, no matter where in the spectrum you lie on whether think of yourself as, let's say, an atomic individual, I'm a thinker, I'm a man, I'm a person, that's the first identity that you claim, versus a social identity, no matter where you lie on that spectrum, can Bitcoin give you something useful? Can you see from your perspective where you stand that Bitcoin is making the world better? And I think the answer is there may possibly be yes. Any thoughts, Troy? Um, nothing as profound as that. <laughs> I mean, sure. I have a really trivial observation, which is that I see so much collective behavior within the Bitcoin space. Like Bitcoiners are a community. They have fights within the community. They have projects. They donate. I mean, the, the devs are supported by donations, right? right. There's this tremendous amount of self-organizing collective behavior. And I think individualism, as it appears in sort of political philosophizing by Bitcoiners, is, is kind of simplistic. And it's an abstraction from a reality where we are all part of, as Andrew said, many collectives, many, many uh, collectives that, that sort of complement and compete with one another. And we, we cannot think of ourselves merely as um, individuals making choices that you know, broadly have preferences and feeding all of those individuals into a hopper, that way of thinking about human beings is really simplistic. I won't say that any particular Bitcoiners think that way, but sometimes they talk that way. And uh, it, it's a weird abstraction from reality, from my perspective. And I, yes, I think all of those organizations, all those collectives that just as Andrew said, uh, can ask the question, could Bitcoin serve our ends? And, um, the, the answer will depend on what that collective is and what their ends are. But much of the time it's yes. And it's kind of easy to miss that if you're focused entirely on the individual for kind of philosophical reasons because you're committed to it. Andrew, I have a question for you directly, and I'm quoting you here. The ability to transfer value to signal that you value something by paying for it. That is such an important social function. And it's been that way for the last 50 years under the tight control of large institutions. They control how we signal value, end quote. My question is, do you think the last 50 years of monetary and fiscal policy has led to distortions in that signal? And how do you think that distortion manifests? When we talk about price signal and price signal being distorted, we're using the words of economists and we're speaking very abstractly. And I don't think it's wrong. There are distortions in price signal. But maybe a concrete example will help make this feel more real. Every week or so, I see on Twitter some thread that uncovers the madness, sheer madness of venture capital these days. Billion-dollar valuations of new firms that don't yet have profit used to be rare. They were called unicorns. Now, par for the course. Totally ordinary for a new startup 
just a few employees. Maybe they got a crypto token of some sort. They got no product. They got no market. They got no product market fit. And yet somebody valued them at a billion dollars and then gave them $100 million for 10% of the equity in that enterprise. Universally acknowledged to be madness. So that's, for me, a concrete image of a price signal being distorted. That is, there's value, yes, but it's not a billion dollars of value. How does that happen? Well, it's because capital is cheap. It's because you can borrow money at 25 basis points or even negative real interest. It's actually in your, in your self-interest to, to, to lever up, to borrow, and then to speculate, to gamble with it. So in a, an environment of monetary expansion, this is the rational thing to do, and yet it doesn't match our sense of what is valuable in the world. So, so when I say price signals are distorted, that's the kind of thing I have in mind. When we're awash in money, then we got to throw the money at something and hope that it sticks. Sure. And that will predictably have all sorts of not so great consequences. Of course, it'll have some very nice consequences for some of those unicorn uh, firms that are being capitalized. Andrew, you've also said that one of the things that Bitcoin can do is discipline institutions. Progressives, generally speaking, are in favor of institutional means for achieving change, but we obviously don't like the corrupt downside. Are you saying that Bitcoin could perhaps make that uh, make the institutions, whether it's government or otherwise, more honest? And do you think your Orange New Deal relates to that in any way? Oh, well, thank you for bringing that up. Yes, I do think there are relations here. I, I think, too, of a paper by the economist William Luther. He's the economist who's written more about Bitcoin than any other. And unlike many other mainstream economists, he's not always poo-pooing Bitcoin. He has a measured approach. But he wrote this paper about the factors that shape the behavior of central bankers. And his central finding was, on both empirical and conceptual grounds, was that central bankers are humans too. That is, they respond to incentives just like the rest of us. And that in when they're in a competitive environment, that is when there are alternatives that people can turn to at low cost, they actually behave better. Their management of money supply, of interest rates, and so on is more efficient. When people can leave. So maybe before we even say a word about Bitcoin, just think about this. Suppose there's a world where the only medium of exchange is the U.S. dollar. Okay, now compare another world where there's the U.S. dollar and there's also the Singapore dollar and the Swiss franc. Is that a better world? Probably. I think you could just intuitively see that, that having an alternative, a different sovereign currency that has slightly different properties controlled by different political actors and so on, is going to make the U.S. dollar better because people can leave, because they can store their money elsewhere, they can use a different thing as a medium of exchange. So I think of sovereign currencies as being in competition with each other for some but not all uses. Obviously, for paying taxes domestically, they do not compete with each other. You have to pay U.S. taxes and U.S. dollars. But on the international stage, they do compete, and that's for the good. We're all better off when we see that. So that, that's what I mean by disciplining institution, is that the threat of exit makes people behave better. But then just, so that's maybe our, our one-dimensional analysis, but let's say we add another dimension. So it's not just the dimension of many currencies. It's fiat versus non-fiat currencies. Okay, well then we can add competition, not just between the fiat currencies, but by providing a totally different kind of monetary system. That's what Bitcoin does. 
And in so doing, I hypothesize that it will, and indeed is, disciplining the whole of the legacy financial system. Bankers are waking up. Some of them are scared. Some of them are looking for ways to profit off this, but they are paying attention. And that is a good thing, in my opinion. So one of our favorite uh, Twitter Bitcoin detractors, while claiming to be anti-fascist, questioned the need to care about the people in underdeveloped countries where Bitcoin is arguably more beneficial for those living under high inflation despot leaders. He did not see a benefit for Bitcoin in the developed world, in the United States. So for the sake of argument, um, I'm wondering if you could actually give us your opinion on the domestic case for Bitcoin. Actually, before we do that, could I briefly comment on that example in the international context? Sure. I think that's a nice concrete example of the dynamic I was talking about of competition being good. So imagine the case of Turkey right now. Monthly inflation is 27 to 32%. Outrageous. Some Turks have access to the U.S. dollar. They're markedly better off for that. Those ones who do have access to a currency that is not being debased in that way. Their life is better. And the fact that they have access to that strikes fear into the heart of Recep Erdogan. (laughs) He's got to do something about it because people can exit. Not everyone, not all Turks can exit. But the fact that, that some can makes the world better. So I hypothesize that in general, having low cost exit options encourages institutions to do better. So that's just a nice case of that. The domestic question is is interesting though. Troy, uh, what do you think about that one? I was going to punt this to you. No, I, I actually think your point that you just made about Turkey holds for the US as well. I think that, first of all, the, the domestic case for Bitcoin is not as strong as the international case. And I think it should just be admitted up front that Bitcoin is more valuable for people in proportion to how much they're being abused monetarily. So uh, we are very fortunate to have the strongest currency, to have relatively open and transparent laws about money. And therefore, Bitcoin is uh, less valuable for us in terms of its use, not as a speculative instrument. And I think that needs to be said up front. And in some ways, uh, Andrew, you're talking about market distortion. The very same uh, market distortions that have led to these ridiculous valuations of companies has also, of course, bolstered Bitcoin. So Bitcoin itself is a kind of market distortion, not all of it, but some of it. And in fact, arguably a lot of the capital in Bitcoin is from that distortion. (laughs) And that's also the kind of that distortion is also the discipline. So it's an interesting case where I think in an ideal world, in an ideal world, where governments, they honor the rights of citizens, they don't spy, they don't prohibit transactions, they manage a sound money supply and make sound decisions, I think the value of Bitcoin is very low. And we are just not in an ideal world. I mean, for that, I mean, when I think about political theory and Bitcoin, I think about non-ideal theory. Uh, Bitcoin isn't maybe part of a utopia. Because in a utopia, you don't need Bitcoin. Um, I, I put democracy in that category too. And I'm not, I'm not really sure. We need to govern ourselves in an ideal world. If you have perfect rulers, they want to just do that work. You know, they'll ask us what we feel like and they'll respect those, those opinions of the governed. 
So, you know, we don't need rights, I guess, in an ideal world. There's a lot of things we don't need. And Bitcoin is kind of one of those. But nevertheless, um, our world is not ideal and the domestic situation is not ideal. And uh, the kind of discipline that Erdogan is getting from the dollar, Bitcoin is giving to the dollar. And um, I think that's healthy in the, in the domestic scene as well. And obviously some of our friends, um, both of whom I've interviewed, uh, Nicole and Dadu, would argue that their communities would certainly benefit to a greater degree than, say, Wall Street, obviously, in the speculative case for, for Bitcoin. So I think there's still certainly communities within the United States that would benefit to a, to a greater degree than perhaps what we've been alluding to already. Absolutely. Bitcoin has always served first two different groups. There's those who need it and those who can do it. The ones who need it, these are sex workers and people who are selling drugs online and people who get banned from payment platforms, people on the margins. And then there are those who can, the speculators. Bitcoin has always attracted both of those. But even setting aside inflation and Bitcoin as savings technology, it has domestic purposes, both good and bad, in that former category of those who need it. And we shouldn't ignore that. All right, gentlemen, let's move on to the meat of the discussion here. And that's your uh, proposal about uh, Bitcoin and its offsetting its uh, environmental impact. I want to start a little bit more generally here uh, before getting into the nuts and bolts of your proposal. So to set the stage here, I think it'd be helpful to discuss a bit more the the normative aspect of uh, Bitcoin's environmental impact. And so I think that's a a good way of displaying that is an example here of a friend of mine who, when talking about Bitcoin, he said its energy usage, its environmental impact is a deal breaker for him and he would not buy any. And yet the same person drove around a sports car. He used his large gas guzzling boat and drove it around the lake uh, all summer. And he's a progressive leaning guy as well. So we just got past the holidays. All the Christmas lights are up. And so these lights, the boat, the sports car, these are all solely used for pleasure, you know, and outside of the pleasure and happiness, which obviously has its own value, there's little utility in these things. And yet Bitcoin gets lambasted for its energy consumption by this very same person who uses the boat. So Troy, you've been in this scenario to a certain degree. You mined Bitcoin in 2011. And yet you stopped doing so because you were concerned about its energy usage. And yet here you are still fully engaged with Bitcoin and devoting a portion of your career to studying it. So please tell us what allowed you to accept Bitcoin's energy usage, yet not dismiss the protocol outright. Right. Well, wow. The phenomenon that you're pointing to is really common. It's what you talked about the attribution, fundamental attribution error earlier. Uh, There's something like that at work with energy, isn't there? It's like energy usage or emissions associated with a certain activity. You call attention to it if and only if it's not an activity that you're engaged in. <laughs> I mean, we all, we, all, we all do this, right? Whatever sorts of things that I like, I justify the energy usage as worth it, the emissions as worth it. If it's something that somebody else is doing, I see it as extravagant and wasteful. We have something to, to solve this. It's called a market. You know, we we devote money to things that we think are worthwhile. And um, uh, Andrew was talking earlier about how the market is this series of the system of signals of value. The problem with emissions 
is that they're not priced in. That is, pollutants of all kinds affect people's health, affect uh, the health of ecosystems. And that's a real harm, but no one is pricing that into the good. And, you know, CO2 is a special case. It contributes to this very slow process that's very indeterminate in who it hurts and when it hurts them. It may be decades hence. Uh, it may be right away. We have no way of knowing who will suffer and how much they will suffer because of it. But there it is. It's in a side effect of a lot of the things we do, like Christmas lights and cruise ships and everything. What's the right way to think about value and emissions? The answer I have is nothing original. Um, we call these things externalities, side effects of some activity that's not priced into the good. And um, the, the slogan for externalities is um, internalize the externality, you know, price it into the good somehow. Usually you do that with a tax. If we, if we price carbon uh, in accordance with uh, its effects, we would have more expensive fuels. No, that's the general solution. Um, that doesn't work so well with Bitcoin. Because if you tax carbon in one place, it just moves elsewhere. But that's my kind of general answer and the ideal answer. It's just like, let the market figure it out. I don't, I don't want to pronounce from on high whether we should have Christmas lights or cr cruise ships or Bitcoin. Like, I, I don't, it seems like a lot of people have an idea that they can make that decision. And that Bitcoin in its worth should be like lower than Christmas lights or higher than Christmas lights. I don't want anybody, any particular person making that judgment. I'd rather have the market making that judgment. Uh, but making it rationally with externalities priced in. Troy, your, the general tone of your answer is, we'll let the market decide. But I can imagine many listeners will say, but Professor Cross, we know markets fail. We know they're not pricing it incorrectly. And isn't let the market decide just kind of a libertarian talking point? So what are, what are you doing saying this on a progressive Bitcoin or podcast? We know that markets don't always do this well. Well, that's right. I mean, uh, it's a market failure. But it's a market failure kind of across the board. It's a market failure with Christmas lights. It's a market failure with cruise ships. So these are all market failures. The question is something like, which market failure do we target with moral opprobrium? And that's where I don't, I feel very much at sea. Like my stated position was price the externality in and then let markets decide. And then you've, you've fixed the market failure Unless by market failure, you mean something else. Unless you mean something like, I have an idea of what's truly valuable, that's different from people's preferences. And even if we had the externality priced in, still the market would be failing. And maybe we have that discussion that's different. But I'm, I'm assuming we've done the pricing and we, 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 see, we see these all as market failures. I haven't really said what my solution is yet. So <laughs> we'll get there. I mean, uh, what, how I think about it, why I started mining, why I started getting involved in Bitcoin again. And uh, I'll, I'll try to be brief, <laughs> but it's not, a, it's not a short journey, but I'll try to be very brief in just describing it. One part of it was realizing, well, part of why I left Bitcoin was the magnitude of emissions that could be associated with Bitcoin. And my initial calculations in 2011 which were back of the envelope calculations about what if Bitcoin went to the price of the market cap of gold, how much emissions would the network produce? And that was using, you know, graphics cards at the time and with a 50 Bitcoin block reward at the time with most Bitcoin yet to be mined at the time. That math was disastrous. 
And one thing that's changed is that the math has changed, right? And my projections were wrong. Bitcoin's usage is actually, energy usage is much lower than I projected it to be. So I was just wrong. It's like less than 1% of global uh, energy consumption. So that, that was one facet. I was wrong on the facts. Another facet was that I didn't realize how green Bitcoin's energy usage would be. I didn't realize what kind of a consumer of energy it would be, that it runs on the cheapest energy in the world because it is location indifferent, because it's time indifferent, and it runs on energy that is very, very cheap, and much of it would be uh, unused otherwise, waste energy. I had no idea at the time that Bitcoin could play a role in stabilizing the grid. I didn't think about Bitcoin's role in incentivizing renewable build-out in advance of transmission. So I've learned a great deal about Bitcoin mining, how it operates and its potential to actually green the grid and to fund the build-out of renewable infrastructure. And I also learned that it's simply not consuming as much energy, simply not producing as much emissions as I once thought. So, so, so my thinking was really changed by a long investigation of the facts. I always believed that Bitcoin was valuable. That part didn't change. What I didn't realize was that that Bitcoin's power consumption would not usher in the apocalypse, as I now believe. So your paper, Greeny Bitcoin with Incentive Offsets, you begin with two assumptions, that one, Bitcoin has value, and two, we should seek to minimize carbon-intensive mining. I think 100% of the listeners are going to agree with assumption number two. There's probably going to be several of listeners of this podcast that are new to the Bitcoin community that may not yet believe that Bitcoin has value. So I want the two of you to give me your elevator pitch as to why Bitcoin has value. I mean, you just have to look at the fundamental features of the protocol to see its value. It's uncensorable, it's permissionless, it's limited in supply. And uh, each one of those features makes for something valuable if people need it. Do you need uncensorable transactions? Well, if you have someone who is trying to censor your transactions, you do. Do you need a currency with limited supply? Well, if you're in an inflationary regime, you do. So what the, the value of Bitcoin is the value of scarcity, the, ver- the value of that digital scarcity. It's the value of uncensorability. It's the value of being a permissionless and open network. And like I said before, that value, it doesn't sort of exist unconditionally. It exists because we lack those things in, uh, in money. Uh, otherwise, right? Other, in, an ideal, in an ideal monetary regime, Bitcoin would have far less value. It may be just a speculative instrument. In our world, with non-ideal monetary regimes, it has value uh, because people actually need ways to send money to dissidents in Belarus, they need ways to send money to feminist groups in Nigeria because they're censored by their banks, right? Gladstein is the person who kind of documents the dysfunction of the monetary system that Bitcoin fixes around the world. So its value is, uh, I guess I want to say something like, it's like adaptability and ecology. It's relative to an ecological niche or an evolutionary theory, right? Bitcoin's value is relative to a niche. What is your situation? Bitcoin may or may not be valuable to you, but is it valuable per se? It's not like water where every single human being must have it. 
no matter what their situation in order to live. No, I think that was, that's perfect. It was obviously a long elevator ride, but I, I think you, as you look at each one of those elements uh, that you listed off for Bitcoin, you look at its opposite and what that would mean to you in your current environment, your current living situation. And then that in turn allows you to decide how valuable it is as an individual. That's much better. <laughs> could, I, could I take a crack at it? Yeah, of course. There are people who would use computers as tools to control and surveil all of us. This is a likely and to me scary future where big data combines with artificial intelligence and would-be autocrats to surveil and control all of us. Money will be digital. There will be digital money of some kind. So my question is, do I want it in the hands of those would-be autocrats or not? Bitcoin is a way of saying, no, we want an alternative kind of monetary system and good that is not under the control of those people. It's an alternative. And that, to me, is the one way of preventing that scary but not unlikely future of total control of all of us via the money. Perfect. That was, We've got... That's far better. That's far better, Andrew. <laughs> We've got everybody accepting uh, assumption number two and number one at this point. And so please, the floor is yours to discuss your, your paper. Again, the greening Bitcoin with incentives off offsets. I have a question that might help us connect to something that Troy was already talking about. Troy proposed that ordinarily, when you see something with negative externalities, how do you price them in? You tax. So you just raise the cost of doing something, and then people are less likely to do it, or at least they take into account the negative externalities. So Troy, why don't we just tax Bitcoin miners who aren't using green energy as a way to price in? Good. Exactly. That's the initial impulse. I think it's the initial impulse that regulators are going to have around the world to Bitcoin mining. Bitcoin mining produces emissions. Let's, we got two options, ban it or tax it. And uh, neither of those options will work for Bitcoin mining because it will simply move to another jurisdiction. Bitcoin is fungible. All Bitcoin, all the, all the outputs of mining are equivalent to all the other outputs. It's instantly transmissible. You can't stop it at the border and add a tariff onto it. And we saw what happened when Bitcoin mining was banned in China. Hash rate jumped right back to where it was. It took a few months. China's actions resulted in basically no less carbon in the atmosphere. And that was about as good as it gets. A complete ban is going to do more than a tax. So that's, that option's not available. I guess this is called carbon arbitrage. You ban some carbon producing activity, it goes elsewhere, and then you import the product from where it's produced elsewhere. This is how a lot of people are meeting their carbon pledges by curtailing industrial activity that causes carbon outputs, and then just buying the goods from elsewhere. And any attempt to, to tax, seriously tax or ban Bitcoin mining will have the same exact effect, except there will be no way to stop the carbon arbitrage. If only there were some way to tax Bitcoin miners, not using a government tool, but some other kind of financial instrument. There is, in fact. So here's, here's Troy's and my proposal in a, a nutshell. If Bitcoin holders invest in, i.e. subsidize green Bitcoin mining, we can make it more profitable to mine Bitcoin in a green way 
than not, and thus impose a kind of tax on anyone who's not mining Bitcoin greenly. We give a boost to the green mining and thereby make it more profitable to do that rather than non-green mining. Yeah, what we're proposing is actually, first, first of all, it's a perfectly voluntary uh, thing that Bitcoiners could do or not do as they see fit. But it would allow you to hold Bitcoin in a carbon neutral way. Um, the end result is you have some Bitcoin, you want to hold Bitcoin, but not be responsible for any emissions. You can do that. And what it requires of you is to invest in something else alongside your Bitcoin. And that is uh, mining with renewables or other zero carbon forms of mining. Bitcoin is very special in how it's mined. When you think of mining, you think of like gold mining or mining for copper or something like that, um, where the more energy you put into mining, the more copper or gold that you get out. But with Bitcoin, it has a fixed supply. It's 6.25 Bitcoin per block or 900 Bitcoin per day. And while you might be able to, in a short period of time, mine a bit more by adding a tremendous amount of hash rate to the network, there's a difficulty adjustment. And very quickly, you will return to mining 6.25 Bitcoin per block, 900 per day, no matter how much energy you put into the network. And in reverse, uh, when, when China banned mining, we lost a tremendous amount of computing power on the network. For a very brief period, fewer than 900 Bitcoins were mined per day. But there was a difficulty adjustment. Once again, it was 900 Bitcoin per day, although much, much less energy was being spent on mining. So that's the kind of fixed issuance, fixed rate of issuance feature of Bitcoin that makes it different from any other kind of mining. But it also makes possible a way of greening Bitcoin mining that would not be available or not make sense for any other kind of mining. Because when you mine some of that 900 Bitcoin per day yourself without emitting carbon, say you're doing it with geothermal or hydro or wind or solar, when you do that, there's less of the 900 Bitcoin daily reward available for all other miners, including the miners that are doing it in a carbon intensive way. So theoretically, the more hash rate you throw at the project of mining, that is uh, hash rate that is produced by renewable or carbon neutral electricity, um, the less block reward is available for non-green forms of mining. And um, should I keep going? <laughs> you want to jump in, Andrew? Well, I think that nicely describes the shape of the solution. One important insight that we had that allows us to make it a bit more specific is just this question. Okay, so I want to have green Bitcoin. I want to hold Bitcoin and I want to do it in a carbon neutral way. How much should I invest in green Bitcoin mining to do that? There needs to be some way of matching my holdings over time with co-investments in mining. And the answer that we give is very simple. It's take how much Bitcoin you have out of how much Bitcoin there are. That will give you a number, let's say 1%. And then invest in mining so that you are subsidizing 1% of all mining. And then you've done your job. The amount of mining that you've incentivized by holding Bitcoin is taken care of by your own investment in green Bitcoin mining. 
And in doing this, you can reflect your values or express them in the Bitcoin network and the mining that sustains it. Yeah, I just actually did the math um, a few days ago for El Salvador. We know how much Bitcoin they have. I just figured out their Bitcoin as a percentage of all Bitcoin and figured out what percentage of all mining, what, what that same percentage of all mining would require of them. So it's something like 144 um, S19 pros is what they need to green their Bitcoin. Um, they have a geothermal mining facility. In fact, they have like 300 machines at that facility. I don't know what those machines are, but I'm pretty certain that they have already met our standard for green Bitcoin. That is, I think they own whatever it is, 0.008% of all Bitcoin, and they're doing more than 0.008 of all mining. Here's the one just thought behind matching these percentiles. So the incentive to mine comes from holding Bitcoin. It's all of us holders who keep the price where it's at. And Bitcoin miners are all paid in Bitcoin. So the value of the Bitcoin they're paid in is determined by the market for Bitcoin. And we make that market by holding. And the way we see it, all of Bitcoin mining is incentivized by all of Bitcoin holders, that total. So if you want to know how much incentive you're creating, you simply take your percentage of all holding. And that's the percentage of Bitcoin mining that you're incentivizing. And then our prescription is mine the very same thing that you're incentivizing. If you mine, if you incentivize 1%, mine your own incentive. Of course, you can mine more. And uh, you could have a, you know, Andrew and I have talked about this. You could have a nonprofit that just mines Bitcoin and sells it, doesn't hold any at all with renewable energy, simply to uh, drive up the difficulty and the hash rate on the Bitcoin network, essentially pushing out of the market more carbon intensive forms of mining. Right. So you don't, you're not limited to, mining your percentage, but it's a very, very, when we do the math, it's actually a very, very small side investment. And like 144 machines is a tiny percent. It's like 1% of El Salvador's you know, total Bitcoin holdings could be spent on green mining annually would be sufficient to offset. I shouldn't say offset. I should say they'd be sufficient to mine the very same incentive that they're creating. So the bottom line is there's a financial device, which is extremely minor, which is just mining Bitcoin with renewable energy in an ongoing way that is sufficient to own Bitcoin without contributing uh, anything to the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, without contributing anything to emissions. Can you explain again how it pushes out the non-green uh, mining? Yeah. So... <laughs> Well, here's what, here's what happens in, in detail. When you add hash rate to the network, you make block time, blocks discovered faster in the short term. Blocks will be discovered faster than if you did not add that hash rate. Then there's a difficulty adjustment uh, so that block times remain at 10 minutes per block. That difficulty adjustment lowers the target nonce for the miners. It makes it harder to find a block, meaning you have to spend more energy in order to win a block. On average, more computing power is required to win a block after you add more computing power to the network. So that drives up the cost to mine a Bitcoin, like the cost to mine one Bitcoin go up after you add your hash rate. 
So every miner around the world, if you're adding a substantial amount of hash rate, difficulty goes up, their calculus changes, their profitability calculus changes uh, for the worse when you add hash rate. Their profitability cal calculus changes for the better when you buy Bitcoin. What we're doing is putting those two forces in equilibrium. When you buy Bitcoin, that makes miners happy. That makes number go up. That makes profitability go up. When you add hash rate, that makes difficulty go up. That makes profitability go down because winning a given block reward now costs more energy, takes more computing power. The goal here we have is just to put those two forces in equilibrium. Is seeing this as a subsidy for green mining, is that a wrong uh, frame of reference to look at it? I don't think so, but I do think that it might cover up another attractive part of the proposal. And maybe we see that as just to ask, well, why would someone do this except out of the goodness of their heart? And the answer is that it's not just because of conscience that you might do this. You might do it to make money because investing in Bitcoin mining turns a profit. So you buy a bunch of Bitcoin, you do a co-investment, as we suggest, equal 2.5% per quarter of that large buy of Bitcoin and then that 0.5% that you've invested in mining is working for you and you get a share of the Bitcoin created from that mining operation and you turn a profit. Now, will you profit as much as simply buying Bitcoin and holding it? Maybe not. But mining does have this attractive feature to it. It has a different risk profile than simply buying and holding Bitcoin. Simply buying and holding Bitcoin, all you want is for number to go up. But when you invest in mining, there's... I don't know how complicated I want to make this. Let, let's just say that, let's just say it has a different risk profile uh, because it takes time for the Bitcoin to come out of the mining machine that you've invested in. No, no. I mean, it's a, it, the scenarios under which you make a lot of money, mining more than holding is where hash rate does not rise as fast as price. And, you know, and, and then the opposite holds true. Scenarios where you make more money uh, holding Bitcoin than mining is where hash rate is rising faster than price. So it, it, they're just different. Pro it can be profitable. And it's been profitable. It's been extremely profitable, more profitable than holding Bitcoin in the recent past. To your point about, is it a subsidy? It, you could think of it as a, as a subsidy from individual people. It's not a government subsidy. Right. But it's, it's also a, it would, in principle, if we collectively, we Bitcoiners who are interested, who are holding, throw our capital behind green mining, then green mining is going to get more expensive, uh, right? Because we're all rushing in. And non-green mining will get cheaper because there's not as much capital chasing it, relatively speaking. And so in that sense, it'll, it'll look kind of subsidy-ish because it's like, why is, why is this green hash rate costing me more? Um, well, because Bitcoiners are piling in because they want to green their Bitcoin. That could happen if it's adopted in mass, right? If Bitcoiners take up our accounting, really what we're just introducing is an accounting device, kind of like carbon offsets. There was a time before we had the idea of a carbon offset and someone had to say, you know, you can emit carbon, but then if you plant some trees, it'll suck that carbon back and, you know, it'll sequester it. Somebody came up with that idea. Okay, we actually don't think that's such a great idea, but... It was still some kind of way of thinking about emissions and how to manage them, right? And this is another such idea. It, it doesn't really apply to markets outside of Bitcoin. That's why it's so hard to explain to people. 
because those market the markets outside of Bitcoin, uh, it'd be kind of like saying, you know, you, you have two methods of digging for gold. One of them is a, a harmful method and the other one is not harmful. And uh, our advice would be something like, if you want to own some gold, then you should also be digging up gold in the good way. <laughs> and, uh, it, you know, that wouldn't work for gold because digging up gold in the good way doesn't stop anyone from digging up gold in the bad way. It doesn't even slow them down. If you have, if the good gold mining is in Alaska and the bad gold mining is in South Africa, the South African miners don't really care whether you're mining gold in Alaska. It might depress the price a little bit that you're dumping a little more supply onto the market, but it doesn't prevent them from digging anything up. Bitcoin is almost the opposite. It's like when you start mining in Greenway, like on a, at scale, you don't increase the price of Bitcoin or the, sorry, the supply of Bitcoin. So you're not dumping Bitcoin onto the market, thereby suppressing price because issuance is fixed at 900 Bitcoin a day. So you, you, you can't do that. But what you can do is prevent other people from getting a share of that 900 per day, which is weird. The way we, we Andrew and I have pictured it is like mining is like one giant milkshake with all the miners around the world having straws stuck into that very same milkshake. So when you mine, there's just left milkshake for everybody else. There's like 900 Bitcoin worth of milkshake every day. And um, the more straws in that milkshake and the bigger those straws, the less profitable it is for existing straws um, because they're getting less and less milkshake for the same amount of expense, right? So that, that mechanism is just new. But we call this, this vehicle a, a green co-investment instrument a GCI. And our hope is that holders of Bitcoin will purchase a GCI along with their Bitcoin. It'd be an ongoing commitment to do some green mining. Exactly how much green mining to do depends on a lot of variables, which change over time. But it's an extremely small amount with its own risk profile and its own return. So it took me a few times reading your paper to get my head around it. And so I encourage our listeners who are new to the Bitcoin space to take your time. There's going to be lots of technical terminology, but I'm sure that Troy and Andrew would be more than happy to answer any questions that you have about it. So feel free to uh, reach out to them. And I don't, I don't mean this with any hyperbole. I certainly don't understand the nuances of mining, let alone financial instruments. But to me, if implemented, if this works, is arguably one of the best advances in the Bitcoin space ever. And my reason why is that twofold. One, it addresses arguably the number one FUD, right? And two, it allows for this idea of, and many people may argue with this and may not care about this with regard to their what they invest in, but it's certainly a progressive notion of activism, of doing your part. And if you believe Bitcoin to be good, then mining your values and doing your part to offset any downside is a good thing. So to me, it is the ultimate sustainable investment product at this point. So I was stoked to see that you had put this together. It's brilliant. I do have a couple additional questions, if that's okay. Could, it, could I just 
share a slight reservation. This is only about something, the, the way you worded it. You said uh, it's the biggest FUD. And a FUD stands for fear, uncertainty, and doubt. This is what Bitcoiners call anti-Bitcoin arguments. And Mark, uh, with respect, I just want to push back a little bit on that phrasing of it, because in my opinion, this isn't just FUD. It's a genuine moral objection, something to be taken seriously. So, so I'm not saying that you're not doing that, but I think the the vocabulary might suggest that. So I just want to say, Troy and I take this dead serious. We think that this is a serious moral barrier to people with you know good character and good conscience, for good reasons, have reservations about buying Bitcoin. And... I, I don't think of it as just FUD or just just a yet another anti-Bitcoiner argument. It's a real barrier uh, that should be addressed head on, both by showing that Bitcoin is valuable, yes, but also by showing us how we can have Bitcoin without spewing more carbon. I agree. And thank you for calling me out on that. I appreciate it. I absolutely uh, appreciate that and agree. Yeah, I'd like to... I'd like to second what Andrew said. And and also, yeah, even to, to go back to the earlier discussion, it's very difficult to have this conversation. It's emotional. The space is filled with misinformation and half-truths. And uh, on the outside, as a non-Bitcoiner, if you have non-Bitcoiner listening, you know, you what you've heard is horrific. That Bitcoin's energy use is apocalyptic and world-ending. And I did the math myself 10 years ago and came to that conclusion. If you're inside the Bitcoin space, you've seen half-truth and lie and misrepresentation about Bitcoin's energy use, and you've seen downplaying its role in grid balancing, its role in financing renewables. You've seen um, you know, misleading statistics like calculating Bitcoin's energy usage per transaction, and it's maddening. And so a lot of Bitcoiners retrench and any criticism of this externality of producing carbon emissions and other kinds of emissions, other, you know, e-waste is another one. Um, the side effects of mining that are not good for the environment, for humanity, any sort of criticism is met with hostility from within the Bitcoin community. It, we're back to the emotion point at the beginning of the podcast, right? We're in the sea of emotions on both sides of this issue. And uh, I'm with Andrew. I think it is a serious concern I'd like to address. At the same time, I don't think it's as apocalyptic as it's being represented as, right? So this thing that Andrew and I have is a way of scaling the price of Bitcoin and the popularity of Bitcoin without the environmental impact, right? Because if, if as Bitcoin grows, and mining grows, your duty to mine also grows along with it. If 1% of all mining is now huge, then you have to you have a big commitment towards mining. So it's it's if widely adopted, this is a way we could keep the network green, even under extreme uh, price scenarios. So do you think your GCI proposal could augment the impetus towards Bitcoin uh, further driving its use of renewable energies? It's been stated that because Bitcoin seeks out the cheapest energy, uh, therefore it's going to drive development in usage of renewable energy sources. Do you think your product could potentially augment that impetus? I mean, absolutely. Uh, we, we haven't rolled out the product because 
we're still missing some pieces of the puzzle. But one way to do it would be have uh, bond offerings to fund uh, the installation of green mining facilities. And that's going to accelerate a trend that's already that's already real, as you say, uh, Bitcoin mining seeking out green sources of energy because they're cheap, and then funding those facilities when they wouldn't otherwise pencil out. But yeah, bond offerings that Bitcoiners buy for just that sort of purpose would accelerate that process. My last question, does it actually, if there's an ever-increasing usage of renewable energy, uh, does it actually become cheaper? Does that lower the cost or the need for your product? Let's suppose that renewable power is just cheaper. It just keeps getting cheaper. That's been the story so far, right? Solar's price curve is just incredible. That would say that our product is in a way unnecessary because Bitcoin mining is going to flock there anyway. That would be awesome. <laughs> it would be awesome if this product was completely unnecessary. Um, but if it's unnecessary, then it, it still would be profitable to invest in it. And to go back to the subsidy point, it wouldn't really be acting as a subsidy if you were mining in a way that would be the cheapest way to mine in any case. Then there would be no subsidy, but in effect, the same thing would be happening as if there were. So our proposal is in a way independent of the relative price of green and non-green energy or green and non-green mining. It just says, if you own X percent of all Bitcoin, do X percent of all mining in a way that's carbon neutral. And if carbon neutral mining is more expensive, then that's going to be less profitable mining. And if carbon neutral mining is cheaper, that's going to be more profitable mining. But if you're committed to owning Bitcoin without carbon emissions, you're just committed to mining that percentage, whether it's more or less profitable mining is irrelevant. How much of a difference there would be if everybody adopted this versus if everybody didn't adopt this, how much of a difference would it make? That's going to depend on the relative price of those kinds of mining. Yeah. It'll make more of a difference if renewable mining is not cheaper than non-renewable mining. Here's one variable that's relevant to that question, which is the timing of the climate crisis we face now. Grid energy is getting more green. Yes. When will it become 100% green? 40 years from now? 20 years? Maybe 60? Hard to say. It's, it's trending in the right direction. So there's one piece of the puzzle. The other piece is, well, how much time do we have left to do something about a climate crisis before it's too late? The most apocalyptic answer to that question is something like, 10 years or 11 years. I'm not sure I accept that, but I accept that the number is alarmingly small, probably within our lifetime. Andrew, I just have to, introduce, I have to interrupt here. No, the, the most pessimistic is that that time was 30 years ago. Uh, you're, you're right. Uh, I mean, I was thinking about AOC and that, that, that the 12 years speech. That, that's the number that came to mind. And she was castigated for being too alarmist. But that, that is now firmly within popular consciousness. And it's not crazy. I don't think it's absolutely nuts to think that either it's too late or that it's within 10 years, let's say. Uh, so, so then my question is uh, how those two factors intersect. The grid is getting more green. Yes. Uh, will it get green enough within our lifetimes? Maybe not. So then how can we accelerate it? GCIs. Exactly. That's, that's perfect. Gentlemen, we've covered a whole hell of a lot in nearly two hours. Any final thoughts? I've listened to your episodes so far, Mark. I like what you're doing. The vibe I, or the phrase that's 
stuck in my mind after listening to these episodes, seeing reactions on Twitter, is Bitcoin with a heart or Bitcoin with a conscience. We've had enough of Bitcoiners without a heart or Bitcoiners without a conscience, or at least who like to pretend that they're like that on Twitter. That's their public persona. I think it's tremendously important to show that Bitcoin is valuable beyond mere price appreciation and to not diminish its possible negative externalities and maybe to even fix them. So thanks for your work, Mark. I appreciate that. Thank you for saying that. Tell the listeners where they can find you. Please tell them about Resistance Money. Resistance Money is a research collective with three academics. What is a research collective? That just means it's a website where we stash our work. Uh, me and two other philosophers, we work on Bitcoin. And Troy is an honorary or adjacent member as well. Uh, it's The website is resistance.money. So we're a couple of philosophers who like to think, read, write, and talk about Bitcoin. And that's where we put all our work. Troy just hasn't learned the secret handshake yet, or is, what's the issue? The uh, Resistance Money crew goes way back, and I am a very recent friend of these three. And um, yeah, but they're an old crew. I'm a new entrance entrant in the field. <laughs> yeah, I want to say too, Mark, thanks for having us on. Um, the bottom line here is that you can hold Bitcoin without contributing to carbon emissions. For some people, that won't matter, either because they don't see value in Bitcoin or because they don't care about carbon emissions. But for some people, for a lot of people, we think it does. And we think, uh, as, as Andrew said, that Bitcoin is a net good in the world. And we think that this stands in the way. This is one of those blockages that people have to adopting Bitcoin. And it's a very common one, maybe the most common one. And as Andrew said, we don't dismiss this concern. There are various price scenarios under which carbon-intensive mining could accelerate to form a, a substantial percentage of carbon emissions globally. And I don't want to be a part of that any more than I did 10 years ago. This device that we're introducing is one way to do that. There are many advances in the realm of green energy and Bitcoin mining, grid balancing and incentivizing the build out of renewables among them. Uh, but this is our contribution to that effort to reconcile a commitment to uh, sustainability and to appreciate and accelerate the adoption of this technology, which we think is in a net benefit to the world, which is Bitcoin. That was a beautiful elevator pitch. We'll end it there. Thank you so much for your time. That was truly incredible. <laughs>